You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just a labor organizer. So I'm always like, I can't, like I'm talking to workers, like I can't do this shit by myself. What are your ideas? And then we, <laughs> I've been, uh, I've been involved in, uh, some uh, pretty pitched uh, teacher union battles, and I work for the teacher union this week over here in Oregon. So sleepy old Oregon's getting interesting. Uh, I wanted, I can, to, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I can relate to that though. Um, I I know what's like in negotiating, and uh, that's. Uh, I, I remember uh, I was doing that at Micah for a while, and it was. It's a it's a full time job. Sometimes it's just it's it's a lot of work. You know, just meeting with. So you've done some of that. Yeah, we, um, me and six other professors at MICA started the first adjunct union at MICA. And it was, uh, it didn't go very well, unfortunately. But um, I can talk, tell you more about that later. But it was- Oh, man, I, I've uh, done the work for 24 years, union brother. Yeah. Chloe, union sister. Um, so, yeah, I love that. That's absolute. That's absolutely uh that's absolutely incredible. I'm trying to merge. Um, I have I have two identities: uh, it's mm-hmm. podcast art guy and labor guy. Mm-hmm. Those two identities they're the exact same. I have mm-hmm. to show others how they're the exact same. Art, art, organizing, expression—it gets mm-hmm. the shit done. So it's long to try to connect people with that idea, but it, we're we're on the way. There's know? commonality, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast, a super exciting uh, Baltimore episode. Uh, Chloe Nicholas, uh, who was recently episode 189 of the show, fantastic episode. It was wonderful to meet Chloe. She's back and is co-host. And uh, we have Alex Fine, uh, whose uh, illustrations in art. Uh, tap into my particular mind, and uh, so I love uh, looking at them all in the forms of uh, you see um, uh, with the concert posters and illustration that you do. In I've heard you describe the main task of taking words and what somebody's conveying and try to show what that is. Uh, Alex Fine. Uh, Recording over here, over there from Baltimore to Oregon. Welcome to the show and uh, happy to have you on. Oh, thanks. It's ha- I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Chloe as well. We're going to drop into some illustrator type stuff. I want to tell you um, something I haven't told either one of you. When I, uh, my uh, editor and producer, Peter Bauer, uh, who produces this show with Union Labor, um, he listened to Chloe's episode and he, he was really fascinated because he's listened to and produced every episode, but every once in a while we've had illustrators on and both he and I have like, I don't know, gotten into this illustrator vibe or something that feels different about it. So I like that we were able to do this here and to develop some of those points, but I wanted to ask you, Alex, um, when did you see yourself uh, as an artist? When did you walk around and like, this is who I am? When did that happen? Um, I think that like a lot of, you know, artists, I think it started when I was really young, when I was like, in elementary school. 
I, I was very fortunate. I had a really great um, elementary school art teacher, you know, and, you know, in elementary school, you have the same art teacher from kindergarten through sixth grade. And she, at a very early age, um, she, she never, she never talked down to us. She never treated us like we were incapable of understanding certain things. So she, she was teaching us lessons that I wouldn't learn again till college, you know, and she, I think she understood something that a lot of elementary school art teachers don't usually understand. And that's um, when you're young, you absorb information really fast and you're able to learn and process things really fast. And um, because of her, her lessons, not only did I become an artist, but there were a lot of students from that elementary school who went on to art, you know, art careers and, and, and won contests. And she, she really, she really got me thinking like an artist when as early as maybe um, six years old, seven years old. And um, she would enter us in, in local contests, national contests, even international contests. When I was in third grade, I, I won an art contest in Japan because she sent one of my collages. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, and, and, and I'll tell you this as, as a teacher myself, when when you give a student a taste of real world success, it gives you motivation to, to keep pursuing it. It makes you think, okay, I'm validated now. There's someone other than my parents thinks I'm good at this, that think that I can actually do something with this. I'm more than just an average artist, you know? And that makes you want to um, almost become obsessed with it. You you think, okay, if I've if I've achieved this success, what's my next milestone? What can I achieve after this? And uh, that's always been sort of my teaching method too. I think she was um, her her name is Ruth Gaynor. I should I should say her name. She's she's retired now, but just thank you, Ruth Gaynor. Thank you, Miss Gaynor. Yeah. No, so, I mean it's it's it, you took my breath away when you're talking about that. I represent teachers every single day, and this show just drops back so much times when I ask this question of both inspiring and less inspiring or damaging experiences in this realm. And one of the most powerful statements I ever I saw it on poster it shows up every once in a while. My teacher said I was smart and I was smart. My teacher said I was an artist. I was an artist. And there's just something so inspiring, I think, connected to 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 what you're talking about. Um, I just wanted to uh, I just wanted to mention that. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I just had one quick question too, and you said you teach. Uh, what, what, how, what, what do you teach, and what's that experience like? So, um, when the pandemic started, I, I took, a, let's say, an extended sabbatical because um, I realized how difficult it was to teach any kind of art um, over Zoom or through, you know, uh, kind of tele methods. So, um, so right now, I'm actually thinking about maybe starting to apply to different colleges again, but I, I taught at, I taught Micah, I taught the Corcoran and um, I, my first uh, teaching jobs were actually at the Maryland college of art and design, which is, well, it was a small art school in silver spring, Maryland. And I used to live uh, in silver spring. Oh yeah. It was right near the uh, forest Glen Metro. If you're familiar with that. Know that and, Metro stop. Well, Oh yeah. And uh, it was a great experience. I, I was actually still a student at the school and they gave me summer classes to teach the children. And it was amazing. And then eventually I started teaching continuing ed classes to uh, senior citizens at night. And, and keep in mind when I was, I was probably 20 years old when I started and I looked like I was 12 years old back then because I 
I think maybe during the pandemic, I started my aging started to progress more. But he caught it, caught up. Damn. Yeah, up until about six years ago, I still looked like I was twelve years old. I think, and uh, so it was a it was a fun experience teaching senior citizens when I looked like a twelve year old. Well, twelve year olds with tattoos, you know, but. Uh, it was it must be a strange, strange reality for these uh, 80, 85-year-old uh, art students. But oh. um, after one class, they realized I, I think I, I think they realized I knew what I was talking about, so it was okay. But um, but teaching college was always my favorite, you know, um, my favorite teaching experience because um, when when you teach college, it's almost like you take a um, a mentor role too because these are students that you're going to keep you know, instructing even after they're not your students anymore. These are people that you're going to stay in touch with the rest of your life, I think. And there's something, there's something special about teaching college too. But um, I'd say I'd be open to even teaching elementary school to do, you know, to hopefully be as uh, influential as my elementary school art teacher was because um, I just, you know, I know teaching elementary school though is also a lot more stressful than teaching college. Uh, I don't think they pay elementary school teachers nearly enough money to do what they do because you have so many students and you have so much, um, so many personalities that haven't yet fully developed. And I, I think to to be able to reach these kids at that age is a really, it's a really you know um, special trait that that these teachers have. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Alex. And. Uh, uh, Chloe, in order to interrupt this uh, bro fest, and I'm sorry, it just, I mean, it, things happen in Silver Spring and comic books and Golden Girls and Amen. So, um, uh, Chloe, um, I part of part of in, in approaching this episode, we're just talking about, um, you know, like uh, illustration. And uh, as you know, when we had our conversation, Chloe, I was just really enthralled by the ideas that were captured uh, in your images and just really uh, uh, thrilled by those. So I've connected to recently just the power of illustration and just opened my mind and understanding your process and such more. Um, So I wanted to thank you uh, for co-hosting and in order to actually co-host, I have to let you (laughs) co-host. I'm I'm passing the baton because I just did a sprint there. So cool thanks so much ken it's great for it's it's really kind of you to have me on as a co-host um yeah so uh alex one of the things that i uh was noticing about your work you did a magnet set of the golden girls and i was so excited by that i was like oh my god that just excited everything um like any young child or anybody who's beyond that age would be so that would be that's such a fun experiment what uh experience did you um what what was it like doing that project oh um well it was really fun because um i had just done a a few other golden girls jobs like for for a moment there i was just i felt like i was like the golden girls illustrator which i i can't imagine a more fun moniker to have is golden girls illustrator but so I, I'd done this job for Hulu um, and, and, and Tumblr, which was a promotion to, you know, um, to kind of celebrate the release of all seven seasons on Hulu. And it was sort of like um, a series of animated gifts, and, which was a lot of fun to draw, too. And that's, I got that job right as I was making the transition from traditional illustration to digital illustration. So I feel like I was kind of feeling my way around custom digital brushes at the time. 
And when I got another Golden Girls job, I was like, okay, now I'm a little more settled into digital so I can really, really make them shine now. And I can really like do them justice. So my next Golden Girls job was a book for Harper. No, I'm sorry. It was a book for um, Penguin Workshop. Um, and it was a Christmas book about the Golden Girls. It was like a night before Christmas, but it was taking place in Miami. And it was about like a horrible rainstorm and they were afraid it was going to be a hurricane. And, and um, Blanche went out for the night because that's what Blanche does. And, you know, so it was a really fun book. And, and um, it, was, it was a great experience working with them. So right after that, I got the magnet job. And I was like, oh, this is great. Just keep the Golden Girls jobs coming. And I felt like it was the perfect timing because I had drawn them so much that I felt like I could draw them from memory at that point. And um, when they told me the premise of the, the, the project, when I got the brief, you know, in the email, I was like, this is perfect because um, I got to draw all the characters full body. I got to draw all of their accessories, like their drinks and purses and, you know, uh, sport jackets with shoulder pads and things like that. And then, um, you know, wicker furniture. It was, it was like a dream come true doing that kind of work. And um, what was also cool is they, they had me draw two backdrops. Uh, they had me draw the Lanai um, with all of the uh, patio furniture and they had me draw the um, kitchen. And what I loved about drawing the kitchen was they had all of these um, cake molds on the wall. Like you, you might notice it if you look at uh, uh, you know the kitchen interior, they have all of these like they kind of look like copper cake molds, and they're all over the walls. So unfortunately, the the magnet set was really tiny, so I couldn't get too much into the details. Right. But um, I loved to you know try to get as much detail as I could at the size that I was drawing. And I've never really been like um, the kind of illustrator that draws like elaborate backgrounds. So for me, it was kind of a challenge. And that was also fun, too. I, I, I love uh, challenging assignments. I love it when, you know, I get an assignment that kind of takes me out of my comfort zone. And so I got to draw like, you know, the wallpaper and the floor patterns and all the appliances on the countertops. And it was it was a lot of fun. It was a good experience. And I have to say the best part of that job was um, going to my friends' houses sometimes and seeing them on their refrigerators yeah. and them not even knowing that I, I did the artwork. That just means they just bought it because they liked it and they saw it somewhere. And yeah. uh, I know they were selling it at Atomic Books in, in, in Hamden. And, and I know a lot of my friends shop at Atomic because it's an amazing bookstore. And um, so going to people's houses for like dinner parties or, or just like randomly being at people's houses I don't even know and seeing the magnets was it, was, it was a lot of fun just seeing my work out in the wild, as they say. I was going to ask you if you had done the backdrops to them too. So I'm glad that you let me know that you did. Oh yeah. It was, it was so much fun. Like just drawing all the plants on the lanai and the, uh, what, you know, the Miami background. Yeah. What was, um, and, and which part of that did you say was challenging? Was it just like all of the details or just fitting um, everything in there that was relevant well, that, that know, needed to be in there? Well, um, you know, for me, and this is something I really uh, respect and appreciate about your work is yeah. that um, being able to compose a scene with uh, accurate angles, you know, with an accurate perspective, that's like, to me, the most challenging thing, because even if you have all of the um, background knowledge of one point, two point perspective, you know, uh, horizon lines, vanishing points, things like that, when you actually have to execute a background, when you have to draw everything in correct proportions and uh, perspectives, it can be challenging because it's all about consistency. You have yeah. to, 
you have to make sure that if there's shadows, the shadows are consistent. If there's lights, the lights are consistent. And so for me, I got way inside my head when I was doing these backgrounds where I was like, this doesn't really look completely accurate. But I also thought to myself, these are just going to have magnets that are not in scale whatsoever to the backgrounds. So I, I kind of uh, let myself be okay with it not being 100% accurate. But if, if, if this was like an editorial illustration or an ad campaign, I would have probably made sure everything was 100% to scale. And I would, have, I would have made all of my grids and made sure everything was perfect. But in this case, I felt a little more relaxed because um, the nature of this is like the purse magnet is like, you know, it would it would be a giant purse if it was going with the uh, person because they wanted the they wanted all of the accessories to be um, detailed enough to be large enough to to be able to be like recognizable, I guess. Yeah. So uh, so you know that kind of put me more at ease. That it doesn't have to be a hundred percent perfectly accurate in terms of perspective and angles. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. It looked like it was a lot of fun to do. Oh, it was, it was a great job. I, the more, the more golden girls jobs I get, the better. But I have to say though, lately I've been doing a lot of Bob Ross jobs and I feel like Bob Ross and golden girls are sort of like hand in hand. So I think the thing is, um, I've always considered myself a Mr. Rogers type person. So maybe I'm getting all of the wholesome content now. I don't know. I think, uh, I'm just like, I'm not a very, I don't think people think of me as like an edgy artist. So, uh, maybe I'm, I'm getting all of the, uh, all the happy little clouds, happy little, you know, TV sitcom jobs. I don't know. This, this is like, there's so much content in this episode in so many directions and I Wow. I, um, uh, that's just, just so fascinating to hear about. And, and for me, uh, listening and learning from it, there's actually been like, a, for me, I just bought the book. Uh, I found a hardcover copy of it. I had a paperback of must be classic, uh, perspective made easy. Oh yeah. Uh, this classic book. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, I, I thought it was a life, uh, help manual, uh, and I purchased it, but it turns out it's an illustration, uh, manual. So (laughs) I, um, I, uh, so I was just looking at all these terms and I just want to tell you, just so you know how I hear this, I've never shown proficiency in representing what's out there in any sort of way with representational once that's not part of any of my process or how I've developed my abilities. And when I paint, mm-hmm. it's abstract and mm-hmm. not really controllable in a way I can understand. So mm-hmm. one radical thing happened to me. I forget if I mentioned this to you, Chloe, but I was taking an art class. Uh, first time in my life, organized art class a couple months ago. I've never ha- had an art class in my life. And, uh, or like little workshops and stuff. And it was over a couple months. And uh, Susie DeVille, who's been on this show, had the just, you you, you got to copy, illustrate, draw. I don't, I want to make sure I get it right. Um, upside down. Oh, so yeah. the image is upside down. Yeah, I know that one. Yep. And you know, you know what happened? What? <laughs> I could illustrate. Yes. I had never been asked. Now I'm you know I'm not I'm not in the galleries or nothing like that. I'm saying that I could do I could do what was there and I could never do what was there before. Somebody flipped 
it. And my brain said, oh, so, oh, somebody turned it the right way. Whatever's going on with my brain, whatever. It's yeah. complicated. And now it's the right way. And I started, and I've just done two or three. I did an elephant. I did. I would always finish what I was trying to represent that was out there by my hand and be like, oh, I hate, fucking hate this shit. Yeah. Like, because I always wanted to, like, I didn't have a good relationship. I wanted to be, what's out there? I want to capture down there with my hand. Maybe I can now with, like, whatever happened with that. It's that radical. So I'm, like, two months into illustration mm -hmm. in my life, and I'm 50. That's a very um, common exercise. I had that one too when I was very young. Um, and the, the, the way that that works is that you're kind of unlearning. Um, you, you have, there's a difference between drawing what you're actually seeing versus drawing what you think you're seeing. Oh. So um, when you're trying to, oh. when you're actually like looking at something and trying to replicate it exactly like just beginning, it's likely not going to look exactly like that in the beginning because you don't know um, exactly how you don't know how all of the, uh, shapes, you don't know how all of objects work in, in 3d space yet. Um, but when you're doing it upside down, you don't even know what the image is. So you're, you're not, your brain isn't trying to make you draw something that isn't actually what you're seeing. Wow. Thank you. Wow. That's incredible. The the one other thing connected to this too, that is just the other, only other thing that I would illustrate that would be completely obsess, obsessive, duplicated within environments, loved doing it, loved what I see when I did it, all geometric shapes, all geometric shapes. And my partner now, Jenny, we talked about this, like when we were first, you know, meeting each other and we had, we had like done that or shown that I looked at hers and I was like, yo, like, what do you, like, what did you do there? And she had done that. And then somebody later explained to me, they did a psychological read, which I liked. It was cool. I love hearing about these ideas. They're like, well, I'm in a union meeting. I, I'm like, got all these conflicts, nothing but conflicts sometimes. And I'm doing these geometric shape with perfect angles and cutting this way and trying to do shading that way and you're ordering your life you have no control of this fucking mess that's in front of you mm -hmm. your brain's doing trying to <laughs> show you that things can be pieced together somehow i'm like eh, probably but um i was fascinated i'm just fascinated by that because it's just a reflection of my mind and in, in a very uneven experience with developing what you all talking about i just sit there and be like keep talking for three hours about what you do <laughs> well it, it's funny that 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 exercise is really good because um like chloe said it's it's about you know it, it's partially about unlearning and it's partially about um not not kind of coming up with your own like image of what you think something looks like um and and i've noticed that as an artist as i think as any artist but specifically as an illustrator for me, it's like, you know, as you get older, you don't want to have the same style your whole life. You know, you, you want to keep evolving, keep adapting to changing trends and things like that. And so I've noticed that being an artist is like, it's like a constant state of unlearning. You know, you have to constantly get out of your own like kind of um, style or your own uh, um, sort of rigid way of thinking and visualizing things because um, I can't I can't name you one artist that just kept the same style throughout their whole career, their whole life. And you constantly have to, I, th I think to, 
it, it's it's weird. It's like almost like a paradox. You have to like unlearn to learn something. You know, you, to to learn how to yeah. see things different, you have to unlearn the way you've always seen them to begin with. And and so it can be frustrating too. Like you were saying before, you felt like you were never an illustrator. You could never draw representational. And it's you know because it, it's like when you're when you're younger, when you're a young art student, they make you do blind contour drawings. And basically, you look at something and you don't look at your paper while you're drawing. And the whole point is you're supposed to be drawing what you're seeing, not just looking at your paper and trying to remember what you saw. Mm-hmm. Because if you remember what you saw, you, you're going to draw, like, let's say you draw a hand. You're going to draw a hand like you imagine hands look, not what they actually look like. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the paradox because, like, when you when you do a blind contour drawing, it looks like looks like an abstract drawing because <laughs> you're, you're not seeing what you're doing. You can't look at your paper. <laughs> But in but what it's doing is it's training your brain to really make observations on what you're looking at and, and notice what that specific hand looks like, not what you think that hand looks like. And and so yeah, I, I would definitely encourage you to keep doing these exercises. Yeah. That, um, yeah. That really make you um you know, um strengthen your observational skills because representational art I think starts with an, a foundation in observation more than just um just learning how something should look. You should, you have to like kind of observe it yourself and and figure those things out for yourself. Alex, when you were, um, many people might not know about your graphite portraits, but Mm -hmm. like when, when you were starting out, did your work Mm -hmm. look more like that? And then you like transitioned into the look that you have now, like how did that come about? Cause that was a lot more, about representational i mean there's still like some stylization going on in them but it's still like a lot more like three-dimensional feeling so how did you like get from there (laughs) oh definitely um so it all started um when i was a kid like i loved realistic illustrations like my favorite artist it's like it's like if you ask a painter who their favorite painter is and they say picasso you'd be like well, that's a pretty basic, you know, answer, you know, but for me, it's like, I, I always say Norman Rockwell. It's like Norman Rockwell is my favorite illustrator. And I know he's like probably the most famous illustrator ever. And it sounds like a very simple answer, but I, I just, my whole life, you know, up until college was me trying to um, recreate Norman Rockwell's style. I just, cause I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand how someone could draw and paint so realistically and so naturally while still, like exaggerating forms just enough to give life to these these drawings. And I just didn't understand it. I, back then, you know, before I really learned about art, I, I didn't realize that he was exaggerating. I thought he was just looking at people or photographs and just copying them identically. I thought, I thought that's how you do that. You just copy what you see. And going back to what we were just saying about representational. But, but what makes um, artists like Norman Rockwell and countless other illustrators so successful is they take they take um an image and they they exaggerate just slightly so that um maybe like an arm is a little longer or a leg is a little longer or an expression is a little more animated so that it really makes it come alive and and actually um elevates it higher than a photograph you know a photograph you can edit in photoshop and different programs but honestly you know um it's uh, if you just take a, a photograph and just alter the levels of things, it, you're not going to get a sense of what it was like in the moment when that photograph was taken. But an illustrator has the ability to um, to bring these uh, representational images to life more by exaggerating a bit, you know, by by you know um, adding a little more life to them. And I think that's what Norman Rockwell did. He was he was just a master of like if he drew someone running, 
they looked like they were running. It, it wasn't just a snapshot. It was like you really felt the energy in his in his illustrations. So I spent so much time trying to figure out how to capture that. And it wasn't until um, later on that I realized what he was doing. And uh, by that time, though, I'd gotten into so many other illustrators. Like I, I loved like Kent Williams and and James Jean and Yuko Shimizu and Nathan Fox and all of these amazing illustrators. And so um, I feel like my style became almost a hybrid of all of theirs. Well, well, and I don't want to insult them because uh, my my work did not look as good as theirs when I was in college. Um, I mean, I don't want them to look at my work as a younger illustrator and be like. He was influenced by me, uh, you know, yeah. but, um, I mean, not to be self-deprecating, but you know, it's, uh, so what happened was though, I think <laughs> you become a culmination of all of your influences pretty much. And so I feel like, you know, where I start out trying to do realistic and I, like my work was very graphite based, you know, charcoal based. I love compressed charcoal and, and graphite. You know, I, I use like, you know, from a 6H to a 6B pencil and my neat eraser. And, and I have to be honest, I never stopped loving that. So as I got older, I, I, I developed that style more while I was developing a pen and ink style because my favorite illustrator when I got to college was Charles Burns. I just loved how he used light and dark. You know, um, you asked me earlier about comics. Black Hole was one of my favorite comics. Too. Yeah, rock, rock and roll here. <laughs> oh, Definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, just there's so many great like kind of he, he made a lot of like small graphic novels, too. And and so I got really into Charles Burns and that led me to Daniel Klaus. And uh, I adore Klaus. I adore Klaus. Oh, yeah. Sorry for the showstopper piece there. Oh, definitely. I have a, 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 a dirty, a dirty, uh, semi dirty story related to Daniel Klaus. We have to get into that later on. Go ahead. Sure, definitely. And, and I have to say, Daniel Klaus, I met him at a book sign in D.C. And I was afraid to meet him because I'd be j- just like just like a lot of artists, you kind of judge them based on their work. And and when you're a graphic novel artist and a comic artist, you put a lot of yourself into into these, you know, stories. So I was just like, man, based on some of his, you know, I remember the first Daniel Klaus uh, graphic novel I read was David Boring. And I thought to myself, it's like, man, the person who wrote this must be a really interesting person, you know? And, and then I had the same thing with Charles Burns. And, and I thought to myself, God, I, I don't know. It's like, should I meet this person or, or are they going to be like really aggressive? Or are they going to be really like eccentric? But Daniel Klaus was like the nicest guy in the world. He, he had a line out the door all the way down the street. It was at uh, uh, Poetry and Prose in, in D.C., and, uh, and yeah. it was just he stayed the whole time i remember afterwards i went to comet ping pong which is like right across the street i think or maybe down the street you're killing then, me bro you're killing oh, me bro oh, oh yeah and, <laughs> and after i ate my pizza i went back to to, to uh, i was with my friend rico um and we went back to his car and there was still a line he was still signing books and i was just like that's a good that's a good artist that's a, a good person who's just gonna stay until the line is done you know because a lot of artists don't do that i've been to book signings where they're like i'm gonna be here for for one hour and then if 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 the hour goes by and you haven't got signed tough luck and but he stayed there the whole time until every last person you know got through the line and he was he was just really nice and you know it's you know it's weird because i, I have to do a little aside here when i met uh when I met my my wife Chloe, um, her, her name is also Chloe, um, um, and uh, I got confused there for a moment. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, you know, unfortunately, we're 
you know, uh, separated at the moment. And that, that's okay. We're still really good friends. I have not to get that's all. That's great. But, um, but I remember uh, when she first, uh, when we first started going out, she didn't know that I had drawn all of these posters that were on her wall, like at her apartment. And uh, so like the first time I saw her apartment, I was like, oh, where'd you get these posters? Cause some of them were like five, six years old. I mean, uh, they were from like 2000, you know, and, and we started dating in 2005. And I was like, and I knew I had to be the one that handed her the flyer because I was the only one passing out flyers to these shows. So she's like, oh, you know, you know, I, I did all of these. And she's like, I had no idea. And she's like, I always pictured the guy who did these being like six foot six with like a big, like green mohawk and like a tattooed neck and stuff. And I was just like, nah, I'm just like a dorky artist, you know? I mean, I, I do have tattoos and stuff, but I'm like a short, skinny guy who, you know, wears button up shirts and, you know, is like not a very, you know, not a very shocking looking person, you know? And, and that always struck me because I thought about that with other artists I know. Sometimes like an artist, I think artists use their work as an outlet for the things that they think, but they don't say. And, and it made me wonder, it's like, am I thinking all of these things and I'm putting them in my posters, but I'm too like inhibited to actually say these things out loud. (laughs) (laughs) And I think a lot of artists are like that. I, I, I thought about that with Daniel Klaus. I was just like, maybe his comics are an outlet for the things that he thinks, but you know, in civil society, you don't actually say out loud, you know, and, and it's not like anything is graphic novels are that over the top or anything, but I noticed that with a lot of like artists, a lot of comic book artists, they, they put things in their stories that they probably wouldn't like express in, in the real world. And, you know, I, I always wondered that about myself, you know, because I'm a, I'm a very polite guy, you know, I'm a, I'm a very like, you know, uh, as, as, uh, my grandparents would say, I think I'm a mensch, you know, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the kind of guy that would be like aggressive or mean to anyone. And, but my artwork was like, some of it was like a little like crazy. And, and I'm just like, man, maybe, maybe I'm part of that too. Maybe there's a part of me that I don't feel comfortable expressing in the real world. Yeah. But I put in my artwork, you know? No, it's, um, well, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I love all. I'm, I'm I'm a huge Klaus uh, fan myself. I got to tell the stories just so I don't forget it. And I'm not. This is a secret bookstore s- story, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna share the location now, but I'll tell you the what's what about the Daniel Klaus and the smut. So, Daniel Klaus' mom had a, an extensive collection of kind of kinky romance, like the, the underground books. Uh, paperbacks you know like classic like kind of cool looking you know underground cheap ones and um so where you get these in the collection Klaus had drawn and illustrated in many of these books maybe connected to what's going on in the story so where you try to get these you purchase them be like i'll buy daniel Klaus' mom's smut book you know paperback you know pulp fiction and maybe you'll get a daniel Klaus originals oh, within yeah. it so i bought a few no i bought two or three i didn't get any illustrations so oh, oh. um it would have been a better story without that maybe it was wasn't such a great story but anyways there is a chance to get discreet young daniel Klaus illustrations 
through purchasing Pulp Fiction's uh, collection of his mom. So, I, would, I would love a young Dan Klaus smut drawing in a paperback. That would be awesome. I mean, it's just like, I love seeing artwork done by, you know, well-known artists when they were younger, you know, it's, it's fun to see like their evolution and see how they develop. And, yeah. That, that would be amazing. Yeah. It could be a book selling ploy. Both of you. I mean, I don't know. They could be like, you know, keep, then it say one in a hundred. They just said it's from the collection you used to illustrate yeah. in them. So, unfortunately, my my mom threw away. I think all my old artwork from when I was a kid. So uh, there's no young young Alex drawings out there. I don't think. All right, all right. So they, they, there there goes that market. Yeah. Um, Alex, uh, wanted to ask you this, and um, uh, wanted to ask you what is art? We're talking all this stuff. We're talking Golden Girls, Amen, illustration process, pencils, charcoal, erase. What is art? Um, that's like, yeah, that's always a hard question to answer because it's so specific to to the person who makes the art, I think, or the person who interprets the art. But I think that 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 actually is kind of what it is. I think. To me, like art is taking a personal perspective, like a unique perspective, and figuring out a way to communicate it. And that that communication isn't always meant to be even fully understood. I, I think that um, as an illustrator, I feel like you know we're often like you know interpreters for other people's perspectives. You know, someone else writes a piece, you know, for a magazine or a newspaper, and then our job is to read it, analyze it, dissect it, and then figure out a way to create a visual for that. So that's a very specific kind of art. But I think art in general, I think we're all just, you know, it's hard It's hard to be a human without interpreting everything around us 24 hours a day. You know, even in our sleep, we're interpreting things. Even, if we're, you know, in our subconscious, we're, you know, we're, we're taking bits and pieces of our days and, and figuring out how to make sense of them. So to me, like art is just making sense of everything around us and trying to let other people know how we make sense of it. And so illustration is a little different sometimes because you can be an illustrator that makes personal work. Like, you know, we're just talking about Daniel Klaus. I mean, his, even though he's a comic artist, his work, I think is very illustrative. He's, he's illustrating his perspective of the world and, and whether it's fictional or autobiographical, it's still the way he sees things. So I think we're all doing that, whether you're a filmmaker, whether you're a writer, whether you're you know, a comedian. I think these are all art forms, and, and we're all just expressing our perspectives on the world. Yeah. Th- thanks so much. I'm, I, get, I, I run into the problem chatting with you, Alex, is I, I do get – I get so enthralled, and I have like a proper role of hosting. So I'm always like pulling in, and I'm like, I got to make sure that, that, that they were still running this thing uh, you know, the, the, the right way. Um, Chloe, when you look at Alex's stuff as an illustrator and you'd be like, you know, I want to I talk to him and we want to talk to Alex. What, what, is it, what, is, what is it when you look at his stuff as an illustrator that you're like, you know, that's dope. Like, what's going on there? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I think, and this is something that most illustrators go through when they're, you know, developing their work early on is like you have such a consistent, distinctive style. And, and yet, like, you also kind of try different things out too. And I'm just curious, like, like there's a few different things going on with your style. Like there's um, like the, these kind of clean lines and then there's like some like more subtle, like broken up lines. Um, and then there's like sort of a, 
I don't know how to describe it. Like, I don't want to say grunge, but like, there's like a, um, like, a, like some roughness going on in the background sometimes too, like yeah. subtle, like things like that. And I'm just curious, like, how did that all come together? How did you, how did you land on these things that um, so clearly identify your work? Oh, um, so um, it's like a, when I was saying earlier that my, my work, I think a lot of artists work sort of like a hybrid of a lot of different styles that influence them. I think that's kind of how I landed where I am at, at, at you know, my current style is yeah. that um, when I first started out um, after art school, I was really into artists like Charles Burns and, and um, I want everything to be clean. You know, I want like one thing about Charles Burns is his lines are super clean. It's just like, you can't even believe a human being made that with like a paintbrush and ink, but cause it's just so precise. It almost looks like vector work, you know? And um so I was obsessed with cleanliness back then. I wanted my lines to be clean. But the problem I was coming into was there's only one Charles Burns. And as hard as I tried, I couldn't get my lines to be as clean as his, as precise. I, I feel like they were clean. There were good lines and everything. But it just, I wasn't getting to where I wanted to get. And I noticed that my work, just, it, it had like a flatness to it. It just wasn't really coming to life. But I, I, I started to realize that all of my favorite artists were silkscreen, you know, print artists, you know. And the great thing about silkscreens is there's always like an unintentional texture to a silkscreen poster. If something's a, a little off register, maybe the ink doesn't completely uh, attach to the tooth of the paper. And, and I started noticing, it's like, how can I recreate that digitally, you know, because I knew like I was toying around with dry brush before and trying to get that effect. But I couldn't control it that well. And it was always just hit or miss. So um, once uh, my friend Kyle Webster started developing his uh, Photoshop brushes, I noticed that he had a whole dry media set. And I was like, wow, this is like dry brush, but I can control exactly how I want it to look. So I started getting more into textured effects through uh, digital illustration on my, on my tablet in Photoshop. And, um, and then um, when I realized that I could use textures to make my lines too, I kind of, um, I, I kind of ditched trying to do the clean uh, lines. I, I kind of doubled down on the messy lines, and yeah. and what I realized was I could create work that almost looked like etchings too. Yeah. Because um, one of my favorite artists of all time is uh, Franklin Booth. I loved Franklin Booth's just the way he saw the the world, the environments, the way he drew clouds. He drew these like really puffy clouds with tons of layers. But the great thing about him was, and I didn't realize this, was that he wasn't an etcher. He was a pen and ink artist. But he loved artists like Albrecht Durer and mm -hmm. thought that those those uh, pieces of art were done with pen and ink. So he, he, he became obsessed with recreating etching styles, but by hand, because he didn't know, I, I don't Whoa. think he was with etching. And, and so I kind of got really into that kind of challenge of trying to create like broken line illustrations, textured line illustrations, but um, still have it be clean in the sense that the lines are still precise. They're just textured and broken. And so for me, like nothing makes me happier than when I print my own work and it looks like something that was off register or a little bit like, like, like the ink got dry or the, the, you know, the colors are a little like pulled off the paper. And um, we live in a wonderful time right now where you can do these things digitally, where you don't have to like, you don't have to have happy accidents. You can have complete control over what you're doing. If you don't like the way your texture looks, you can erase it and put new textures in. You can actually add like filters and stuff after. 
And some might say, well, that's cheating. You know, it's like, it's the happy accents that make art, you know, exciting and unique. But the thing is, um, there's a poster artist, uh, Frank Kozik, and he was being interviewed once. And the, the person interviewing him said, it's like, you know, well, um, what's, uh, what do you say to people who, you know, think that you're just like, you know, you're taking the easy way out. You're cheating when you're coloring in Photoshop or you're tracing images or this or that. And he said, all I care about is what the final product looks like. I don't care how I get there as long as the final art looks good to me. And, and I think, you know, I think that's what it's all about. You know, as long as you're not infringing on other people's copyrighted, you know, or copyrighted uh, artwork, you know, their intellectual property. If you can create an original piece of art, I, I've always been of the mind that I don't care how someone creates the art, it, as long as it's it's original and it looks good, you know. Yeah. And and I kind of that that's always been my mentality. So so when they create like a new technology to make to have you create original art, I'm all for it. I don't I don't care if it cuts corners or is a shortcut. Now I, I have a totally different uh, opinion on AI art, <laughs> you know, because. I, I think AI art is infringing on people's original content. But I think, you know, when it comes to um, using tools that are actual tools for making art, I, I think all tools are fair game. You know, it's, I, I just don't see AI as, as, you know, a tool. I think it's, I think of it more as like, you know, uh, when you click a filter in Instagram and change your face, you know, it's like, I wouldn't call that art. I would call that just something fun to, to play with, but it's not really like, I don't know. I, I, I guess I get a little upset when someone's like, I, I typed in words that, that I want my art to look like and just create a piece of art. I'm just like, well, you're using a lot of other artists' work to create like, uh, and you're having a computer collage it together because it's not even a collage that's made by like an actual person. It's just a pro. Um, I'm sorry. I'm going on a tangent. This is something about me. Whenever I do a podcast, no. I always end up like a, a hundred miles away from the original question. So I apologize. <laughs> no, I've been, this has been coming up on, on, on the show and it's really in this territory around, you know, AI and where it's derived from. I mean, I even found, became fascinated with the, the ideas when um, female, you know, artists would report because there's, there, you know, within some of these formats, there's such a male gaze. It's like I didn't even type in breasts, but everything it like came out like this. So it's like a duplication of kind of social constructs or whoever's putting that together. It's I don't know. I guess we could drop into that uh, that whole thing. Chloe, I think you have something to say. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. The thing about AI is like it can only pull from what has already been uh, made out there. It can't like come up with something new. Um, so and I so I think like the strong case for humans is that we do come up with things that are new, and oh, yeah. um, AI just pulls from everything that already exists out there. So yeah, it it does feel repetitive in that in that sense. Like, oh, can't yeah. even can't even draw hands. You know, like you can't, I mean, you've seen the examples, Alex, I don't know if you've seen them, Ken, but there are examples where uh, a piece of AI art, like everything about it looks like it was executed well. And then you zoom in on the hands and it's like a bunch of broken fingers and um, extra fingers. Yeah. yeah, Like there's just because it's like a Goya all of a sudden when you look closely. Because it's thinking differently than humans are thinking. Because if a human were drawing that, they would be like, 
you know, thinking it through all the way with the hand and everything. That's how you tell the difference right now, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, one day the technology, I mean, it could be one day really soon that they improve the technology, but the only way they can improve it is to look at other artists' work. You know, AI still can't think, you know, it doesn't have a consciousness. It can't really, like, it can't think of why the art should look the way it does. It just, it just copies the thousands of other illustrations. And, you know, I found out that my illustrations, I'm sure yours are too, Chloe, um, are in these databases that, um, that they pull from to learn how to make the art. And, and you know, um, there could be a day when, you know, the AI does replace us commercially. But the thing is, the AI won't be able to um, interpret the world, like I was saying before. It's not going to be able to know why it's doing this. It's, it's not going to have a unique perspective on the world. It's just going to have a perspective based on some algorithm that, you know, is based on other people's perspectives. So mm-hmm. there's always going to have to, I think there's always going to have to be a human component to everything, you know, technological, but, but it's still scary as a commercial artist though, because as we know, everything is about a bottom line, you know, a company, if they can, if they can get an illustration for half the price because it's AI, Mm-hmm. unfortunately they're going to do it you know it's as long as it, it saves some money and so I, I'm a little afraid about the future I have to be honest but but right now I still think there's no they haven't perfected it enough to replace human artists I think yeah yeah big yeah. Just <laughs> yeah. Such, a, such a huge topic and I I remember you know, talking about maybe in philosophy class quite some time ago, you know, to kind of artificial intelligence, you can, and and science side, um, and all that. I tell you one thing I was thinking of, uh, amongst this conversation and I'm thinking about a whole bunch of things, but one thing was pretty cool that I had forgotten. Um, I had interviewed, uh, April March, uh, who's, name as an uh, animator illustrator was Eleanor uh, Blake and I just became fascinated because I forgot about this whole component because um, April March uh, she does she works um, uh, and does like French pop like French pop songs and um, if you see the movie uh, Death Proof by Tarantino she did the Chick Habit song singing in French very catchy groove and all that type of stuff. But she was the lead uh, animator illustrator for Ren and Stimpy. Oh yeah. As like, as like, as, as well. And it was just so mind blowing. Cause I was such a, like an audio, like I'm just listening to her songs. I think her French pop songs are just so groovy. I'd like want to talk to you, but then like there was this whole illustrator um, animator. I don't, I'm not familiar with the terms. Like I would say drawing Aaron and lead animator uh, for Ren and Stimpy was just bizarre, surreal, you know, uh, display. And, um, I think after I haven't done so many episodes, I just remain like deeply fascinated when like, I'm having this one type of conversation and then it's like, Whoa, it's like way over here. And like that too, with high proficiency. And, um, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just really thrilling. And it actually, it's really thrilling to hear about your process and thinking like the AI. And when I've talked about this, it's like, there is no autonomous AI hand yet, unless I don't know something. An autonomous hand that is digital that creates without what you're saying, pulling from Chloe's work, Alex's work, you know, other illustrators' work that's in its database. And that's like, so when we ask what is art for, you know, 
it's like I think one of the responses is like art's made by humans, yo. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that's the, you know, there I you mean, go. it's it, there's like a political angle. Uh, well, you know, it. I always try to look at things from both sides, and when I think about AI, you know, the way AI learns is the way a human artist does learn too. I mean, it is pulling from other people's art, but the difference between AI and a human is we're not actually going to take like actual components of someone else's art and put it into our illustrations. Um, but, but we, we, we remember other people's art, you know, I, I don't know if you, if you've done this, Chloe, but you know, there were times when I was learning illustration where I, I would have folders on my computer of artists I was inspired by. And if I, if, if there was one artist who was like, let's say good at drawing trees, I would, I would open up a, a image of their tree and I would try to kind of be influenced it when, by it when I would draw my own trees, you know? So it wasn't that I was actually taking the actual art, but I was I was looking at someone else's art just to kind of figure out how they see things and how, how they execute drawing something specific. And and I think that's what a lot of us do as illustrators is we're inspired by certain artists. And, and then eventually when we develop our own style, it doesn't look like there's any more. But when we're learning, we, we I think we have to see other art to learn how to make original art. And, and I think that's what AI does in a sense, but what they're doing actually is taking the actual art and putting it into theirs. So when you see a portrait that's AI generated, you can sometimes even see signatures from artists in the portrait because oh, wow. they're literally pulling a chunk of that illustration and putting it in theirs. So, so I think that's what's so offensive to me when it comes to AI art. Is it's, it's, not, it's not that they're just learning by looking at other people's art. They're actually taking the actual art and putting it into their, uh, into their imagery. And, and yeah. so, you know, and that doesn't fly in the illustration world. You can't just, you know, you can't take a James Jean illustration and be like, hey, I like that face. I'm just going to put it somewhere in my illustration. Right. But, but that's kind of like what AI does, I think, from what I understand. I might be understanding AI wrong, but that's kind of how I see it is that they're just, they're just collaging you know the illustrations from other people's work yeah. and making like one kind of like collage you know original well not original like an illustration that's kind of like collaged from older illustrations from it's other a new art. it's like a new image or a new concept but like with actual like chunks of it from others yeah, yeah i think you're right that like we all do learn from each other like as we're developing and everything and then and then I think you reach a point where you're like well I would do this and this differently like I I think this and this could be better about the way that they did that like and I would like to do this this and this like you start to develop your own set of goals for your own work and um, your own visions that you have and you might still have like similar interests and influences to somebody else but like you still have certain things that you want to do in your own work that are most likely going to be different from other people's who might share some of the same influences as yourself. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's, what's great about, about, you know, human made art is that it's like every illustration is like a fingerprint, you know, it's like, you know, it might look like, you know, if you just look at a bunch of fingerprints, you're like, these all just look like fingerprints. They all look the same, but there's little nuances to everyone's work. That's different. And, and that's why like no, no two illustrators are exactly alike. Even if you tried with, you know, even if you tried your best your whole life to recreate someone else's style, it's never going to be exactly like someone else's. Right. And that's what's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, uh, thank you for this thrill. I wanted to, um, uh, 
uh, talk about uh, just before we jump into why is there something rather than nothing. I want that we're I'm reaching you. I'm over in the the woods in the strange territory of Oregon. Boy, I could tell you some stories. It's the most proper place for me at some times, but far across the country, and it's uh, cloudy. Uh, the sun came out for the first day in about 10 days out this way. I ran around like a maniac all day. I got some electric electric scooter. I was going down the road as fast as I could. I mean, it was it was wonderful. Um, I love Baltimore. I used to visit. Uh, I've lived in D.C. I'm from Rhode Island. Uh, so uh, and I'm a Red Sox fan. Uh, I'm going to drop that in there. Uh, full, dis- full disclosure. Um but uh, I, I adore Baltimore. I grew up in an industrial city, Pawtucket, Rhode Island. I, f- I feel comfortable around uh, Baltimore. I used to visit uh, Fells Point. I remember taking a train to visit Poe's Grave, Johns Hopkins. Uh, I just going up there for that. Some I, I just I really love uh, the city. And part of the reason I bring this up is uh, as I've talked to artists in different places, like. I had a an episode with Nick Friesen up in Winnipeg because I happen to be fascinated with Winnipeg and I'm a big Winnipeg Jets fan for reasons that are probably confusing. But I like to get into the scene or hear like what the feel is a bit about like what's going on with the illustration and, and or, or music and art. I live near Portland. It's an hour drive for me into Portland. I go to Portland at least once a week, see a lot of shows, a lot of art. Portland's Portland's a weird place, but I like there's a vibe and I try to express some of those things. So like like uh what like what's going on in in Baltimore? What 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 do you see there nowadays and you know with your sensitivity as an artist? Like what do you pick up on some of that? Do you transfer some of that in your work? Uh both of you. Both of you. Uh, do you want to go first? Uh, go no, no, I'm gonna let you go first because I'm very much a hermit, so I bet you know more about this than I do. Well, I, I'm I'm a hermit nowadays. Like I I because I lived in Baltimore City for about sixteen or seventeen years, and then I just I moved up to the county. I, I'm in Pikesville now, which is a little bit north, like twenty minutes north of, of the city. But um, yeah, when I was younger, though, um, I felt like I like I, I also I've played in bands since I was like fourteen, like a lot of like punk bands and, and garage rock bands and. And um, yeah, Baltimore is like the music scene and the visual art scene kind of go hand in hand. Um, and a lot, you know, my first art show ever was at a music venue here in Baltimore called the Auto Bar, and um, it was all just my uh, my my posters for shows because um, one of the owners of Auto Bar asked me if I would just be their exclusive poster artist uh, that that year. So I made it my senior thesis at Micah. I just did all concert posters. And, Dang. Um, and then it kind of like it kind of like culminated in an art show um, at the upstairs bar in, in, in the venue. And it was such a great night though, because um, I hadn't done any real professional work up until then. I was, you know, I mean, I was being hired to do these posters for the venue, but I hadn't done any editorial work yet or anything like that. And so I, I have this show and um, for my band played, I had a, a, a rockabilly band back then. It was a, Yes. Love that rockabilly. We actually called it psychobilly. It's kind of like, more on the punk side. Than I'm, the I'm down. I'm down. But, cool. yeah, so, um, yeah, we were called the Alphabet Bombers. And uh, and we got our name from the movie Crybaby, the John Waters movie. Because in the Ooh, movie. Yeah, like, all right. Yeah, so all right. The, the yeah, source material is sound. I'm seeing. Okay, go ahead. Definitely. So, yeah. So, Johnny Depp's character, Crybaby, like his father was a serial bomber called the Alphabet Bomber. So, we, we called our band that. It was like I, I had a huge pompadour back then. I had the Johnny Depp look back then. 
And so at this show, at my art show, like my band played, and as soon as we got done playing, I saw John Waters was at the bar. And I was like, this is awesome. John Waters is at like my art show with my band that was inspired by his movie. So I, of course I had to go to the bar and be like, Hey, my, like, I didn't even care about my artwork at that point. I was just like, Hey, my <laughs> band's called the alphabet bombers. We got it from the movie. So he was really nice. And he went to a whole history of, there was a real alphabet bomber apparently who wasn't, it wasn't such a nice story because he was bombing like airports and barbershops or whatever, all in alphabetical order. But, um, but then after that, um, I, I actually, I think I actually grabbed his hand and dragged him over to my artwork so I could show my artwork too, because I was like a really excited super fan. Yeah, yeah and, get over here, get over here. Yeah, yeah. He was probably just like, oh, I, I really regret coming to this art show now. But uh, so he, uh, so after he left, um, there's this guy shooting pool, and he was just like, um, it's like, yeah, I liked your band a lot. I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, I also did the artwork on the walls. You should check it out. So it turns out he was the art director of the Baltimore City Paper. And, oh, uh, yeah. and he, um, that night he gave me my first editorial job. Lovely. Lovely. He had to uh, do a cover for the city paper for their uh, holiday issue. And yeah. I was freaking out because the year before, um, Shepard Ferry did the, the cover for their holiday issue. And I was a huge Shepard Ferry fan back then. And this was, uh, this was like four years before he did the Obama hope poster. I, I just I just knew him from the uh, Andre the Giant you know stickers that he made. Love 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 yeah. that uh, Rhode Island as well. Rhode Island. Oh yeah, as definitely, well. yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. um so yeah like I um I was really excited to do that and and it was just like a great a great you know opportunity and then I started working for City Paper for 14 years after that it was like my weekly client like Joe gave me a lot of work and um, I'll always appreciate Joe for that because. I, I didn't know if I was quite ready to be an editorial illustrator because I'd just done punk posters, you know. But um, but he told me that night. He's like, no, these are illustrations. You're telling stories in these posters. And it's, it's just like a static image that's telling a narrative. It's a story. So, um, so yeah, I, um, I guess my point is that that was a situation where the music scene and the art scene and yeah. all kind of came together. And uh, I don't know, it was an exciting time to be in Baltimore because – I was constantly playing, you know, Baltimore venues. I was constantly doing art for bands. And I felt like back then I knew where every venue was. I knew where every show was. I knew who yeah. every artist was. Because my band used to practice across the hallway from this group called Wham City, that they were like an art collective. And that's, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dan Deacon, but um, he's like, he's, um, I, I don't even know how to describe his music, but it's kind of like, it's like electronic and pop and, party music and I sure. just describing it that way is going to get me blacklisted from every Baltimore venue probably. Cause I just, I'm not good at, yeah. you know, articulating these things, but you're, uh, an, illust you're an illustrator. You're an illustrator. Yeah, I'm an illustrator. I don't know. I, I, I'm a musician too. So you could, you're in both groups. They could give you some heat. Yeah, but, I uh, hope they give me some slack here, but, um, yeah. but yeah, our first show ever, my old band, the Lexington arrows, like um, our first show was with Dan Deacon at, at this warehouse called the copycat building. And, and all these bands came from there. Like also from Whamsey came uh, that band Future Islands. Like they came out of that, yeah. that scene. And, um, and just like Y Oak and all of these great Baltimore bands, like all used to play at this place, the copycat building. And um, so it was just like, I felt like back then I knew more. But so, so I, was, I, I played a show uh, a couple of weeks ago um, and I was, I was telling my friends, it's like, yeah, I noticed that everyone at our shows is like in their 30s and 40s now. And all the shows start at like 7 p.m. and end at like 10 p.m. now. I'm just like, yeah, you know what? I bet there's still like really cool venues that we just don't know about 
because like we're just not in the know we're not in our 20s anymore so so it's just like because one of my friends is like yeah there's just no venues in baltimore anymore like the scene's just not what it used to be i'm like no it probably is it's just we're older (laughs) older people are coming to our shows because they've aged with us like our following has aged with us so we're playing the same venues we always played and we love these venues but there's probably like house shows and basement shows and small like venues with no names that you know. You Baltimore have to, has a lot of that. Has a lot yeah. of the underground. Oh yeah, there's so many shows yeah. where you have to DM the person to get the address. Yeah, I'm, just like, I'm definitely not cool enough to go to those shows. So I'm just like, you know, I'm 43 years old now. I I have no idea what's going on in, in like the. Dude, I'm 50 and I got a podcast. I don't get every invite. <laughs> yeah it's but you know it's totally fine though because i think that's kind of just how it should be well not how i'm not saying that's how it should be you should be able to be 80 90 years old and have fun and go to whatever shows you want but what i'm saying is i think that you know people my age back when i was in my 20s were doing their own things too and that's totally fine you know i don't think it makes you any less cool to like you know be older and and still have your older followings but I just um, I have to I have to admit that I kind of miss those days when I'd go to these random warehouses and see shows, and I just don't know where those shows happening. I still like what's weird. What's what's weird for me on this point is like my my me like however I'm constituted, my habits like haven't changed. As a matter of fact, in certain areas they become more extreme, not like in a negative way or anything, but more extreme with uh, music and venues and times. So. Um, I, I, I need the, on, on Monday night, you know, like I'm doing union organizing, dealing with all these issues all day. But on Monday night, I saw screaming females and, uh, oh, yeah. uh, generation suicida. Oh, open up for, yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. I didn't even know. And, and, and it was Monday night and I was like in my vibe and all that stuff was going on. And I find it interesting. Cause like, I can't have regular conversations of being like, you know, I'm trying to lead this worker revolt and like at night I'm doing this shit. And like, there's not a lot of people that do that. And just like the way that I'm constituted, I need that. That's why I asked like the local scene stuff, because like, for me, that's the juice. Uh, Chloe, um, you had indicated that you're like, yo, um, you know, I think you referred to yourself as a hermit. So I, I'd like to hear your thoughts or, if not, just tell us like what music you vibe on because we're talking music and illustration and stuff. And I do a ton of music in the show. So you have an out if you don't want to get into the hermit stuff in your life. <laughs> tell us what music you like at least. Oh, I mean, I seriously, I am very much a hermit. I don't know. I was not as cool as Alex was or is <laughs> at my age. So. <laughs> Cool, cool um, is subjective. It's very subjective. <laughs> I, I, would, I would not classify myself as cool at, at any moment in my life. But uh, <laughs> sorry, go. Actually, Alex introduced me to the magnetic fields via his stories on Instagram. Oh, and cool. um, I'm really into that. Really, really been so. I have a Pandora station for that now. Oh, and, nice. And actually, um, the singer had also done that same band had done the soundtrack for the audiobooks for um, a series of unfortunate events, the mm-hmm. kids series. And I, so that's how I was like introduced to that as a kid. I was like, I knew that band. Yeah. They were under the name, the Gothic Archies. Mm-hmm. And um, that's right. So yep. I was really into that really in, I, I have that soundtrack and I would listen to it as a kid. And like, even sometimes now, even though it's like more geared for kids, but 
yeah, that that was such a gateway into the, the magnetic fields. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 funny too because um, you know, you said you weren't, you didn't even know that was magnetic fields, but you had yeah. heard them. Yeah. There's so many magnet, magnetic field songs I loved when I was younger, and I didn't know who they were. And um, I didn't get into them until uh, the pandemic, which is really weird, you know, because I was always like into punk rock and stuff like that. And I just, I always knew, they were always like kind of on my periphery, you know, and, um, and I had friends who liked them, but I just never took that deep dive. But during the pandemic, I just like fell in love with this band. And and I, I totally forgot that I drew a, 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 a portrait of the lead singer, Stephen Merritt, um, for an interview he did with uh, with a blog like um, probably 15 years ago oh, and like, yeah. I don't know why I drew this but I drew him playing the Brooklyn Bridge like a harp but like, <laughs> like he was just like this giant and he was playing like the little like spindle things on the on the bridge and and I didn't even realize that was Stephen Merritt like I remember doing the illustration and and I probably at the time I was just like I I, I read the interview and knew you know it was magnetic fields and all that stuff but that was how detached I was. I just like, it was just like any other illustration I was commissioned to do. I, I'd read the interview. I'd be like, oh, that's a band. I'm drawing the <laughs> from a band. And I didn't realize how much of a genius he was, how much of a great songwriter he was. And now I wish I could go back in time and just redo that, that assignment because <laughs> I'm just like, his songs, I mean, it's just like some of his songs, the lyrics just like, just kill me, you know? I mean, they're just amazing. And like, like, you know, we're talking about communicating and, and how that's like what the foundation of art and business. The way he communicates his thoughts, it's like it's comforting because it's like I'm thinking some of the same things, you know, and it's it's cool when you like listen to a song and you're like, Oh, I can relate to this. This is yeah. amazing. Sorry, I, I had to go on a little magnetic fields tangent because I just I love them so much. But I'm sorry, sorry, um back to not at all. That was great. And actually, I wanted to ask you because um, because you have drawn so many so many public figures and celebrities and musicians and all the rest. And I was just curious: Have you ever received feedback from them, or like heard anything that they said about how you drew them? Um, every now and then, it, there's a moment where someone like. I've heard feedback sometimes from, from musicians that, um, you know, I didn't really know much about and I appreciate the feedback, but it didn't hit me the way it does when it's uh, someone that you really love. Oh, yeah. And so, um, a couple years ago, um, I'd done a drawing of, uh, Annie Clark, uh, from St. Vincent for, um, an interview she did in Newsweek. So it was like a full page Newsweek illustration. And it's funny, like I've worked with Newsweek exclusively for about four years now and um and i have a great relationship with the art director and we usually do political stuff so when he gave me this assignment i just like i wanted to send him a gift basket because i was so excited to draw this it's like saint vincent's one of my favorite groups annie clark for my money is the best guitar player who ever lived i think i think her guitar playing is just like it's different she's not like a metal guitarist that just can play really fast like tons of notes and stuff it's just the way she plays her style is just phenomenal and so when i got this assignment i put everything into this illustration i was like up all night trying to to make sure everything was exactly how i wanted it and um when the article came out when the interview came out she um she shared it on her instagram and and, and gave me credit and said she liked the artwork and i was just like okay i can die happy like i was calling like everyone i know it's just like <laughs> Because it's not like it's going to result in me getting any more followers or making any more money, but it's just like validation from someone that you respect, like 
as an artist, like more than like anyone in the world. It's just like that felt felt really good. And um, and uh, maybe on the other side of the music spectrum, another uh, time when that happened was and I'm not I'm not trying to name drop or anything like that. I, I feel I feel like kind of stupid saying this stuff, but um, I I had done um, I used to do these baseball cards for um, the Man Center in Philadelphia. And um, every time they had, they um, it was with uh, AG Live that became Bowery Presents. Um, they would um, they would promote these shows. It, it was they would organize like you know tours and things like that. So whenever their um, their shows would come to the men, they would ask me to do baseball cards. So every summer I'd probably do about 20, 20 to twenty five baseball cards for different concerts. And one of them was Weird Al Yankovic, and I've loved yes. Weird Al Yankovic since I was like you know in elementary school. I just think he's like, he's one of those people that he does parody songs that sound better than the originals in my opinion. American hero, American treasure. He'd be knighted in Britain. Yeah. Oh, definitely. For sure. I mean, he's just, he's, he's a national treasure. He's an angel. He's amazing. And so, um, so when I did that card, I, I drew a little spatula in the corner because that was my little UHF Easter egg. Cause, um, uh, they had this sketch, um, or this part of, uh, the movie about something called spatula city. It was like a store that only sold spatulas. I just always thought that was like the best thing ever. So anyway, I did this uh, baseball card and that week um, he was coming to DC too. So Washington Post had me do an illustration of him for his tour and they did an interview with him. And so I had to do two um, Weird Al illustrations in the same week. So uh, my friend Jen uh, uh, Corsoli, who um, who was um, working for AEG at the time, I asked her, it's like, is there any way I could just like come up to Philadelphia and meet Weird Al? Cause that would be like a dream come true if I could just meet him. And she was like, yeah. So she, she, she got us like, you know, almost like front row seats. And, and then afterwards I got to go backstage and hang out with Weird Al. And this is like, like, this is a moment where I was like, Oh, okay. I could die happy now. This is amazing. Just meeting him was great. But when he saw me, uh, I said, I said, you know, Hey, um, where now I did the artwork for your baseball card. And he said, Oh, you're Alex. And it's like, it's good to finally meet you. And I was like, you, you are familiar with me. That's like, you know, I just get, uh, I was like a choking up moment, you know, because, you know, it's just like, I'm, I don't get starstruck by that many people. And it's not, this wasn't even a case of being starstruck. It was just like, I just love everything he does so much that <laughs> really, really happy to know that he was even aware of who I was, you know? And, and I think every now and then as, as illustrators, I think we all have those moments where like we connect with someone that you never thought you would connect with. And, and I think like being an illustrator, it puts you in these scenarios from time to time where you're like, okay, the world just got a lot smaller, you know, yeah. <laughs> what you see on TV and you know, you, when I was a kid, you know, you'd see him on MTV or something and you're like, Oh well, they're they're living a completely different universe than than I'm living in. You know, it's like they're they're the breathing different air. They're just like they're not in the same world. But I think art kind of like brings us together sometimes through these like opportunities that we get. And uh, yeah, I just it's there's been a handful of times in my life where I'm just like, you know, high school Alex or elementary school Alex would be like losing his mind right now yeah. because I never thought I'd get to meet this person or work with this person. That's, oh, that is, that's just incredible, incredible to hear. I, uh, I thought, um, 
just recently I had an interview at Susan Tomorrow, who heads the Clinton Street Theater, a uh, classic film theater over 100 years old in Portland, and they just do amazing projects. Uh, I just saw an, an image and a graphic illustration of um, a John Waters Festival, at least four to five films that they have coming up. He's going to be there yeah. in person in Portland. I'm not sure when, when that is. But the other piece is when I talked to Susan, we dropped for a bit into Weird Al and UA. UHF and her showing UHF and the um, contest and stuff that were related to the show. So I'm like, it's been interesting to hear about these type of things. Like I had this conversation re- recently with Susan. But let's hey Alex, tell us about this uh, horror film. Okay, so uh, the movie is about. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm even allowed to say the title yet because it's so. Do everything legal. Do everything legal. I don't always say that. I'm a union organizer. Do everything legal for now. Yes, yes. Um, so it's uh, a friend of mine's a filmmaker, and him and his wife are both co-directing this movie. And it's a horror film, well, horror comedy, I guess, because it's about a um, a couple, a young couple who is buying a house, but the real estate agent tells them it's it's um, haunted, and there's a sort of like a poltergeist or a demon in the house that can possess people. So. It becomes like sort of like an exorcist type movie, but it's also kind of funny. And so all I'll say is this, because this was just a crazy thing that happened. I thought it was going to be a pretty low key, like, you know, I don't know why I thought a horror movie would be low key, but they blacked out all of my windows. So because it was supposed to take place at night. Oh. And throughout some of the scenes, there were screaming, like loud screams. Oh, and shit. There was actually like a love scene that was very like, verbally graphic i don't know i i didn't watch the actual filming because you know I, I felt like i should be like in the other room because you know I, i'm not actually in the film crew and, <laughs> and uh but the sounds i i can't even imagine what my neighbors are thinking today oh it was just like way over the top way like you know very explicit in the way it sounded yeah and, sure and then there was a film crew like camped out in my front yard all day so I think there's a good chance that my neighbors think I'm shooting porno movies in my house now. It's like, but, but not just porno movies, like exorcist porno movies or religious yeah. porno movies. Well, I played a priest and he was doing an exorcism. So you hear like sex noises and an exorcism going on at the same time. And it was so loud because I was outside during a lot of it. You could hear it all the way down the street. Uh-huh. So. I, I think I might have to move. I think I just have to pack up my things and just get it. This is a significant event, and I'm glad you have uh, Chloe and I here for this because <laughs> you told us so much in such a short amount of time, and we just met, and I could not be more thrilled and fascinated. First of all, your 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 true lifestyle has been uncovered to your neighbors. It doesn't matter whether it's related to you or not. They yeah. now understand what has happened as – that's the thing that that we didn't quite get about that guy. So you got that going on. Yeah. You got the, the you got the <laughs> it's complete black. You got screams. You got mm-hmm. uh, Catholicism mixed yeah. with sex, which it always <laughs> is. I don't know where we're going with this. So, um, Chloe, you had some sort of big question for Alex. Oh, is this the big one? Is this? <laughs> I don't know. You had a big question. You told me for. <laughs> okay, Alex. Why is there something rather than nothing? I, I think there's something rather than nothing because I think I think we're always thinking about something. You know, I think I think being a person, 
we can't turn off our brains. So there's always something to think about. And as long as we're thinking about something, we're always going to be making something, you know, it's, I think that's, that's what it's about. You know, I don't know about you both, but for me, like I don't sleep that well at night because I'm always thinking of something, something that happened during the day, something that, that I'm, I'm having an anxiety about something that I'm excited about. And, and I think that manifests into your real life. You know, it's like, whatever you think about, you're going to create something about it, you know, and it might not always be good, but it's, it's something that, that is created because you're thinking of it, you know? And so for me, like, um, if, if we were robots, if we were just, you know, if we didn't have feelings, if we didn't have thoughts or consciousness, we would probably, I mean, even then there's still going to be something because life has to keep continuing. So I guess in, in a sense, like, you know, you look at bees and ants and they develop these civilizations you know, these like colonies and hives and, and they might, they might not have a consciousness like we do, but they, they're still creating something, something beautiful, you know? So I feel like there's something just because, you know, we're living things that have to keep living, you know? So we just keep creating things to, to survive, to, to be happy, to be sad. I don't know. I, I hope Chloe, that was, was Chloe, was that answer? Was that answer correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> got it right. <laughs> I, 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 when I, I was thinking about it, I was just like, okay, I don't want to overthink this because nah. there's times I, I was watching an interview today with uh, Jessica Chastain and she was talking about filmmaking and the answer was so like, so schmaltzy that I was like, I hope I don't sound schmaltzy. You yeah, know? don't, don't. Just don't. about the camera looking into your soul. I'm like, okay, don't mention souls. Don't mention like, you know, just, I don't know. I, I tried <laughs> to narrow it down to his, you know. Well, there's an easy, there's an easy out. I've been announcing it more regularly. Um, this show is done in the spirit of Douglas Adams, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series in the 1980s uh, science fiction. And in the book, The Life, the Universe and uh, Everything, there's an answer to the question of why is this all about, which is basically the why is there something rather than nothing. The answer can this, uh, to this can be 42 and it's the last thing you need to say. So, I, you know, it's a tough question, but like I've dropped it a few times on the episode now that you can say 42 and I'm going to move into the mm-hmm. next question, which Alex, where the hell will we find your stuff? Like uh website, uh, where, where's, where's all, all your stuff? Yeah. I mean, uh, my main website is just um, alexfine.com. And um, my Instagram is at Alex Fine Illos. Um, that's with uh, an S at the end. And um, yeah, that's basically like all the only places I really exist online. I, I, I kind of gave up Twitter. It just, I don't know. It was even before Elon Musk took it over. I just wasn't really feeling Twitter. For I've never while. successfully used Twitter. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've tried. It's the only account that I've had hacked multiple times, barely yeah. use it. I, I don't know. I never got a. I never got a start there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. For me, Instagram is great because it's it's mostly just about visuals. You know, you I love visuals. Well, well, well. Internet trolls have found every way possible to start an argument on every social media. I find um, arguments on Instagram seem to be shorter and more concise. <laughs> They're um, shorter and concise. Twitter and Facebook, you you'll read like whole novels full of like people's thoughts, and I just. I, that's none of my business. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm all for arguing with someone about politics and stuff like that. <laughs> if, if it's in the real world, but 
I've never changed anyone's mind on, on social media. And I don't think I ever will. So I just, I, I save my, uh, my political discourse to real life situations. I've, I've, I've done, I've done that myself. Uh, Chloe, um, haven't talked to you in a, in a few weeks before this episode here, anything, any, anything, anything going on or what was the experience like, you know, doing, doing the podcast? I, I talked to you at the time and, uh, it was such a great experience and I, I love to get into it. It's had a bunch of downloads, I think 3,500 downloads so far. And, and I know you like, you like podcasts as well, Chloe. So like what's happened, like what's been happening just lately with you? Uh, I'm preparing for a lecture at uh, York College, the, the York College of Pennsylvania. So um, I just, you know, recently finished putting together the slideshow for that and I'm, I'm practicing for that. And uh, yeah, so my workspace has sort of um, had a lot of flood damage recently from like no. a massive plumbing issue. So there's no floor and my workspace is kind of um, very chaotic at the moment. So I'm just focusing on, on the presentation and preparing for that at the moment. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. That's like, that's not proper in the world. That's not proper. That needs to be fixed. The That's working working conditions issue. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Alex is shaking his head. Um, uh, and uh, Alex, um, it was great to hear when we were uh, chatting uh, a bit before uh, on 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 the show about uh, uh, some of your your union work too. And it was really it was really nice to to connect with you on that. And I got to tell you one thing on the show is. I've had great experiences in labor. Um, the job uh, at present is more difficult than it's it's ever been, and I'm also have a developed uh, you know art side and, and and doing those type of things. But one of the things on the show is um, I just really want to just stop and say. Um, that you've done work as a union member, you've been involved with the union, created a union uh, where you've worked before. And I just really want to honor that. And I also want to say that I believe there's such a tide. Um, there's a generational shift with the attitudes towards unions. And I try to tell everybody who's one generation before me and one below me that this Gen less than 30 in the United States of America are not as polluted as our as a lot of our heads were in uh, Cold War scare, all this type of weird politics. And there's a bunch of stuff going on right now. But the number one pro gen pro union generation since the time that unions were illegal in the 1920s is this generation. Yeah. So I feel that uh, on labor and labor is always saying this. But I, I feel the shift is on. I feel that younger workers have seen some of the working conditions and things that people have experienced. And on some level, it's being shown that they're saying, fuck that noise. Like, I won't accept that. And for me, that's that's very inspiring. And I just... Uh, point of personal privilege or just like the union work that I do and, and, and what's going on. I just, I, I thought it was a great thing to talk to you and, 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 and mention that about the work you've done as a, as a union person. Yeah. You know, um, when the union started coming about at, at the college I was teaching at, it was, um, the thing is, you know, I, I think the reason personally why there's more union activity and support these days is because I think people who patronize you know, I mean, we live in a capitalist society and the people who 
who are the customers, who are the, you know, the people who are, are partaking in our society are realizing that, that the people who work as teachers, who work as, as, you know, uh, manufacturers and even, even doctors, you know, um, are realizing the quality of the product that we get isn't what it used to be, but it's costing more. So they're seeing this uh, inequity firsthand and, and they know that they're going to graduate into the society where they're going to be likely, you know, um, uh, affected negatively by it themselves. So, you know, um, when I was teaching at this art college, I mean, the, it was a fine college, don't get me wrong, but the thing is, um, a lot of these students are going to go on to get master's degrees so they can teach at colleges. And when they see that their teachers aren't, or their professors aren't being treated in an equitable way, they're, they're going to think, well, am I going to suffer that same fate? Because yeah. very few college professors become tenured professors or full-time. Most Nowadays. Yeah, a majority are adjunct professors, and, and it's done that way very intentionally so that the school doesn't have to offer health benefits, retirement funds, things like that. And Has an impact on academic freedom. What the hell are you going to say in the classroom when your yeah. contracts, no, the non-contractor job? Yeah, you have no job security whatsoever. And, and um, so when um, I remember uh, uh, an English professor at the school I was at um, – he um, he actually used to be in one of my favorite punk bands from the '80s too. He was in a band called Government Issue, and Government so issue. When he told me he was in Government Issue. I was like, "Oh, I knew the singer. The singer and I go way back." And I was like, "Small world, this is awesome." He's like, "Well, we're starting a union," and all of a sudden, I started hearing like Billy Bragg songs in my head. I was like, yeah. "Okay, it's like I'm." I, I got really into. I was with one of my friends who was also a teacher at the school, and he wasn't as into the idea. He was, I think, he was more like, you know, it's I I get paid what I think is fair, and and, and I'm you know that's totally valid you know if he feels like he's being treated fairly it's america you can cut your own deal exactly and and, but for me i was like you know what you're right because i I never really thought about it until then teaching was like a side thing for me it was just like it was something i did not for money but just because i love to teach but then i started realizing i started doing the math in my head of how much money my classes were generating you know each student was paying five thousand dollars to take my class and i was teaching a class sometimes of 20 25 students you know, multiply 5,000 times 25, I'm just like, wow, you know, that's a lot of money. And of that, I'm making three or $4,000 a class, you know, I'm making less to teach the class than one student is paying, is paying to take the class. And, and so I thought to myself, there's something wrong here because the school gets an endowment, they get, they get donations, they're, they're getting a lot of money to keep the lights on. And the president of the school is making over a million dollars. Something's wrong here. And so we had town halls when we were trying to, you know, get a contract going. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and then so we we teamed up with uh, SEIU, and we right. uh, we'd have weekly negotiations with the the provost and the CFO, and sometimes even the uh, the, the president. You know, and it, it got it got a little contentious at times. And sure. In the end, we we didn't get the result we wanted, and we we got very little support from the full time faculty because they thought that we were. We were asking for too much and even though you know we had no health benefits and we were making far less than the full time even per class and and i was even serving on committees which adjuncts usually don't do and you don't get paid to do as an adjunct yeah, yeah so you're, ser- you're serving you're serving yeah i was just i was you know doing all of these things because i love teaching i love education i love art so but at a certain point you have to ask yourself it's like even if i love doing this 
am I being exploited by someone? And that's that's what it all comes down to. So so that kind of got me thinking more in terms of unions in all aspects of every industry because I just thought, you know, um, this is what's going on in this country. The quality, you know, if, if someone doesn't feel valued at their place of work, they're not going to do their best work, you know. And if you're not doing your best work, it, it affects everyone around you. And if you're if you're a teacher, if you're in education, and you don't you're being spread thin because you have to work at three different colleges to make thirty thousand dollars a year, you're not going to be giving your students the full benefit of of your knowledge. Of it's your it's impossible. It's a yeah. it's a it's a fixed it's a fixed number of time. Oh it's yeah, impossible. And, and I remember when the outgoing president of this college was part of this town hall. He was trying to talk everyone out of you know, uh, starting a union, uh, taking the steps to move forward because we had to have a certain number of signatures to start the union. Sure. And, and so he was trying, you know, he was basically union busting. He was like, he's like, let me tell you why this is a bad idea. You're going to lose your jobs. You're going to make less money. I'll take care of you. Don't, don't, don't yeah. worry. Get, get this third party out of the way. I'm, I'm, I've always meant to treat you better than I have. I'm exactly. learning. Yeah. 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 He's like, he's like, just trust us. You have job security. I'm like, well, yeah. no, because we, we've been told we have no job security in our departments. You know, we've been told that you're disposable, you know. So um, so I, I stood up during this town hall because I was I was keeping it pretty cool during this town hall. I was like, I thought the guy was full of shit, but I was like, whatever. You know, it's like he's a he's a president of a college. Of course, he's going to be full of, of shit. Course he's, yeah, but, but, but the thing is, um, but I, I wasn't offended yet until yeah. one, one professor stood up. And she is Ivy League educated. She has a PhD. And she said, look, you know, I'm teaching at three different colleges and I'm making less than $30,000 a year. And, and it shouldn't be this way. And what are you going to do to fix it? If we don't start a union, who's going to have our back? Are, are you really going to pay me more money? Do it, can I trust you? And, and, and she was crying. And so his response, oh, no. And then she closed her, her, her question with, um, if I was your daughter, what would you tell me if I if I had to work this many jobs? Oh. Like, what, what, would you, yeah. what would your advice be? So he said, well, if you were my daughter, I'd advise you not to take uh, part-time work. That was, that, was his, that was his answer. So, yeah. so like, after that, like, I had a lot to say. And I think I talked for like 10 minutes after that because <laughs> I was so pissed off. And, and then so after the, um, after the town hall, he went up to me uh, and he he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, he said, well, I'm really glad you're a successful illustrator because you'll never have a full-time job at this college. Oh and I was God. like, well, this, I really feel Point made. by my- Point made. Thank yeah. you for affirming. Thank you for affirming yeah. what I was saying too, exactly. Mr. Smart, Mr. Job, Smart Man. Yeah, it's a job with no upward mobility. You confirmed what I believe. This is why I got so upset, you know? And I, I actually appreciated his honesty, but- I knew his intention was to make me feel bad. His intention was to let me know that I wasn't as valuable as the other, you know, professors at this school. Even though my students were winning competitions constantly, they were getting work. It still doesn't, all that went out the window. Doesn't doesn't matter when it's about adult politics and yeah. other issues. It doesn't matter what the students are doing. It, it, unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah. and, and the the incoming president was way more in tune with, you know, sensitivities of, of the professors and everything. I, I think he is a better president, but it's still, it's like when you're part of an organization, like, like a, a big college that, that generates a lot of money, 
it's hard for me to trust anyone completely. You know, I mean, it's like you can't take someone at their word because their job is to make as much money for that school as possible. It's their job isn't to just to provide the best education. They if they don't if they don't show you know profits, they're gonna lose their job. The board of trustees will boot them out. You know, and and that's the thing is that's that was a learning experience for me because I always thought the president and the provost controlled the school, but it's the board of trustees. It's the people with the money that control the school. You know. And once they feel like they, it's not a good investment, they'll pull their funds and the school will cease to exist. And I had no idea about that. I thought we could make our impassioned, you know, case to the, uh, to the president. He'd be like, you know what? You're right. You know, give us a round of applause and say, you guys are being mistreated. We're going to fix this. But, you proved your point. We accept it. Yeah. But, it but can't no, be denied. That was not the case at all. Because what happened was, Every meeting we'd have, every like meeting we'd have with their lawyer, you know, we had our SEIU lawyer, they had their private lawyer. We'd have these long, you know, one, two, three hour meetings where we would vent. We'd be like, hey, we're being mistreated and let me tell you why. And and by the time it was all done, it just wasn't what we wanted at all, you know. I mean, and it wasn't SEIU's fault. It was just there's not much you can do with the board of trustees. They can say, hey, if you want to strike, strike. We don't care because they knew that there'd be unlimited amounts of, of young, you know, hungry teachers who wanted to take that job for less money, you know, tough, 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 uh, tough labor situation. Yeah. Yeah, Because it's not like a job, like, like if you work in manufacturing, if you shut down one day of manufacturing, that's, that really screws up that, that business. But when you're a, uh, when you're an art teacher, they're like, okay, someone can like walk in tomorrow and we can, we can just tell them, come up with a, 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 a curriculum overnight. And a lot of young artists can do that, you know, because that's kind of what we do anyway, because our jobs are so like, they're, they're so unpredictable. Like you don't know if you have a teaching job from one semester to the next. So, um, so you know, a lot of times I found myself writing a syllabus like weeks before I, you know, the semester starts, I didn't know if I was going to have a job, you know. And so I feel like, you know, in that case, unfortunately, we just didn't have the leverage we needed to, to get a good contract, you know, ratified, but it, it, we still tried and that's all you can do is try. You know? Yeah. And, and, and as we know, teacher working conditions are student uh, learning uh, conditions. So um, Chloe, uh, I'm excited to tell folks that uh, you're going to be back uh, to co-host uh, as well in the future. I think you have like a special, like, Baltimore illustrator, like we're using a secret East Coast weapon all the way from here in, in, in Oregon. And uh, I, I, I know it should be uh, quite enjoyable. Um, I, this is special for me. I don't do a lot, uh, you know, with the co-host and um, just uh, haven't talked to Chloe uh, just recently and getting into like all these um really uh amazing uh topics i just i wanted to thank you both for like an art conversation and just to let you know too like you know when you get into and talking to illustration and that stuff like i'm such a deeply curious person because i don't have contact with you know and you're having that conversation with me and 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 so for me like i truly learn uh, during that. So that's my, that's how my interaction with you. And I just wanted to really appreciate, uh, your, your time and doing that. And, and, and to thank you both for coming on to, um, the something rather than nothing podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. 
is a great pleasure. Uh, mad respect uh, for Baltimore. I almost, uh, I only almost got kicked out of Camden Yards once, and it was I should have, I should have been. Um, Boston Red Sox fans are the most obnoxious people in the world. I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. I get a tattoo. I'm showing you won't be able to see it on the podcast. Obnoxious, loud, and at that time I was a drinker, which I'm not anymore. So. Sorry, Baltimore. It's Sorry. okay. I, I have to admit- Sorry, center field bleachers, <laughs> 1998. It's totally okay. My, my father's from Brockton, Massachusetts. Brockton. And so, oh, yeah, his best friend growing up was Peter Marciano, Rocky's little brother. And uh, that's how old my dad is. He's 84 years old. But uh, he, he grew up, he, he ate dinner at the Marcianos all the time. And um, so he's a lifelong Red Sox fan. He, went, he spent many days in Fenway. And uh, so he made me by proxy a Red Sox fan too. I'm still more of an Orioles fan, but I remember seeing a, going to a game once where I, I, I always liked Dustin Pedroia a lot. He was always one of my favorite, you know, when he was playing, he was one of my favorite baseball players. So he hit a home run at, at the game I went to. And I had to stand up and clap. I just, and everyone hated me. All my Orioles friends, like definitely want me to sit down. They were embarrassed, but you have to give respect for it's due. And uh, I, I, st- I still, I yeah, still, like I, I had, it's just weird when, and, and, and I, I have a lot of respect for, for, for Baltimore Orioles and sometimes in a beautiful park. And, uh, you know, and for me, it's just within the division, it's kind of like uh, a pretty second cousin, like just, yeah, I know you're cool. Like and everything, it's just all like too weird. You're too close yeah. to like Rhode Island. Like it's all just so, uh, strange, but, um, uh, Thank you from uh, for reaching us uh, from uh, Baltimore. Chloe, I hope they fix your working conditions yeah. here. I'm a union guy. Maybe there needs to be a letter and get your, your floor in how you work in your environment is not optimal right now, but you're so skilled. I'd imagine you're just going to have to do your lecture and then get back to illustration, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Apparently the clog was in the city lines because somebody was flushing rags down their toilet and um, there were like tree roots and all manner of other things. And they had to clean it out twice before it was actually fixed. So um, I'm not sure if this is a metaphor for America or anything like that, but uh... well, well, I'll leave you with this. Baltimore is the only city in America. I think that had a problem with something called a fatberg. Like, do you remember this? It was like, I do. Yeah. It was just like a combination of all this like stuff that just accumulated in the sewer lines and was clogging the the pipes. So I I got to draw, I got to draw like a living Batberg and it was, I made it look like a California raisin. It was surfing out. Oh my God. I have not seen this. I'll have to show you that illustration sometime. We're going to have it. We're going to have it in the, in, in the show links folk, as you can see, (laughs) we could continue this for another couple hours. Um, uh, It's been a a, a great discussion. Uh, Thank you, Chloe Nicholas for, for co-hosting Alex fine. uh, Super pleasure to meet you. Everybody check out uh, both of their, um, uh, both of their art, their illustrations, Um, check out their websites. Uh, Just fantastic type of things. Uh, um, fantastical uh, Golden Girls on Alex Fine's side uh, concert uh, music outer space concepts and ocean with Chloe everybody check them out 
uh thank you both for being on and um chloe you and i are gonna be on again soon and we'll announce that episode chloe's back on as co-host love you both thank you thank you this is something rather than nothing 